Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. In just a couple of very short weeks, our families will gather around the Christmas tree to celebrate Christmas together. And there was nothing better than celebrating Christmas with family. But for many... This year will be a tough year because Christmas will be spent without a loved one by their side. Some will spend Christmas apart due to living and work arrangements. Some will celebrate Christmas in remembrance of a loved one that has passed. But for some, this Christmas will just simply be tougher than others. Change can be difficult to handle. None of us like change, especially when change is moving in the wrong direction. We get it, Necessary is, uh, change is necessary and often unavoidable, that, but that doesn't make change any easier to process. Sometimes we just wish that things would stay the same forever. This morning we continue our study on this Christmas series, The Name, the focus of this series being the significance of the names of Jesus as prophesied by Isaiah and Isaiah 9-6. And there is a significance to a name. We know that a name doesn't make a person, but a name when given incorrectly to a person, can set a person up for a lifetime of failure. For example, there was an article that was posted, 198 worst names ever that will make you wonder what their parents were thinking. And some of these legitimate names, I'm obviously not going to give you all, all 198 of them, were given to people, and it would cause any person to feel bad for the recipient of that name. For example, there was someone that was named, Sam was their first name, and their last name was Sung, Sam Sung. I doubt they got any of the uh, stock options that Samsung, the company, offered, but nonetheless, that was their name. There was another that person that named their kid Crisp. That was their first name. Their middle name was something with a P, Crisp P, and their last name was Bacon. No joke, Crisp P Bacon was their name. There was another person who had this completely legit name, Cash, spelled with a K, last name Register. Cash Register. Um, I don't know why, but that was their name. Finally, there was the one and only, I do like this name, Tara Dactyl. Tara Dactyl was this person's name. The importance of a name is absolutely special. When my wife and I were dating, we had been dating for quite some time, my wife informed me after we had been dating for a while that if my last name was Dover, she would not have pursued a relationship or continued a relationship with me. Well, what do you mean? She's like, if the Lord would have allowed us to have gotten married, then my name would have been Eileen Dover. And that just would not have set well for me. Um, well, praise the Lord, my name wasn't Dover. Unlike all of these silly names, though, the prophet Isaiah gives Jesus a set of four names that describe both the character and the comprehensiveness of his rule. Each of these names had a significant impact upon the children of Judah. And at this time, Judah, as we understand, was on the brink of bondage once again. Judah's king, King Ahaz, was a wicked king that completely rejected any kind of godly counsel that Isaiah gave to him as God worked through Isaiah. And in addition to that and that poor leadership, the people of Judah turned their backs on God and served the false and pagan gods of their surrounding nations. They committed spiritual adultery by serving these other gods. So as a result of their spiritual adultery, God was sending judgment upon the nation of Israel through the form of foreign invaders. It's where we find ourselves in the context of Isaiah. The whole first half of Isaiah talks about God's impending judgment. Isaiah spends his time specifically in the first eight chapters talking about this. But in Isaiah chapter 9, he kind of pauses this impending judgment and focuses on the future hope. 
He pauses in verse 9 to talk about the coming of the Messiah. So take your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah first off here this morning. Isaiah chapter 9 as we review this series that we have been discussing. Isaiah begins chapter 9 by talking about the future deliverance or salvation of Israel. The first five verses provide hope to the Jewish people as Isaiah discusses their future hope and deliverance. And as we come to verse 6, Isaiah gives this clear promise of the future Messiah. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the names of the Messiah would have brought great comfort to the people of Judah. Each name was a direct contrast to their current leadership. We've already observed the significance of Wonderful Counselor, that name emphasizing the Messiah's ability to rule in complete and full knowledge, therefore giving him the wisdom and the ability to rule perfectly. And because the Messiah is wonderful, a wonderful counselor, we can go to him with the full confidence that the wisdom and the, and the, providence, or the guidance that he gives is completely sufficient for our life. And this morning... We, or at least last week, we observed the significance of mighty God, mighty God describing the ability of Jesus to rule in complete power. Because Jesus is mighty, he has the ability to rule in complete power and authority, so therefore nothing can overthrow the sovereign plan of God, which we see as the narrative all throughout the Old Testament leading up to Christmas, one attack after another of Satan trying to overthrow God's sovereign plan, and God saying, that wasn't my plan to begin with, and nothing Satan could do could overthrow that demonstrates God's mighty power. But this morning, we find ourselves focusing on this third name of Jesus, Everlasting Father. As I mentioned at the beginning of the message, change can be difficult to process. Sometimes we just wish things would stay the same forever. The Jewish people, unfortunately, were all too familiar with change, especially when it came to their leadership. They would go from a good king to a bad king, and with every set of change came a new set of challenges. To hear this name, Everlasting Father, in regards to their future leader, would have literally changed everything for the Jewish people. I think the name Father, though, with this descriptor of Everlasting Father, before uh, that in and of itself alone was enough to confuse their Jews, or to the Jews of the area. They were used to their men and leaders walking out on them. For some people, that's what makes the holidays so difficult. Their father won't be there to spend the holidays because their father has walked out. I understand that not in every situation the family has separated, and it's not the father's fault. I got that. The father is not always to blame. But some in their particular situations, the father selfishly walked out because they deemed that whatever choice they make is more important than their responsibility as a father. And I understand that not everyone in this room has had the privilege of growing up in a good home. Some may not even know their fathers in this room. Perhaps there's some that know their fathers, but there certainly is no relationship to that. A present father has a tremendous impact upon both the family and the society. The University of Pennsylvania found that children who feel a closeness and warmth with their father are twice as likely to enter college. 75% are less likely to have a child in their teen years. 80% are less likely to be incarcerated. And half is likely to show various signs of depression. Having a good father, but not only a good father, a good father who's present. I'm not talking about a good father who just simply lives at home. 
I'm talking about a father that's engaged in their family, in the lives of their wife, means everything. Places a tremendous impact upon the child and upon the society as a whole. But unfortunately, the Jews, they were inundated with absentee fathers and leaders. Divorce was common in the Old Testament, and the Jews would use the grounds to support divorce. They would use Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 as, as, as a support for that. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and he marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of this house. Now, in the proper context, this passage is merely an introductory statement to something much bigger than this. There's a lot more in that passage that, than this call for divorce. The passage states that if there be some uncleanness in the woman, then divorce her. But the question that really comes down to the Jews at that time is, what constitutes as uncleanness? What does that mean? So there was an issue. There were many rabbis that would teach the truths of the law that occurred, but just like we have today in our uh, society of pastors, you had strict rabbis and you had heretical liberal rabbis. The strict rabbis aligned themselves up with a conservative rabbi named Shammai. The rabbis aligned themselves up with this particular rabbi, Shammai, said that this verse simply refers to adultery. They say that if you and your wife were in a relationship and your wife commits adultery, then that would be grounds for divorce. Liberal rabbis said that it refers to absolutely anything, and the vagueness in that passage was intended by God to allow you to fill in the blank. The liberal rabbis represented with a rabbi named Hillel. Hillel was a liberal, off-base rabbi. Breaking this down even further, Rabbi Hillel claimed that the verse meant a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. He could divorce his wife if she spilled his dinner. He could divorce his wife if she put too much salt on it. He could divorce her if she walked out in public with her head uncovered. He could divorce her if she walked with men in the streets. He could divorce her if she spoke disparagingly of her mother-in-law. He could divorce her if she argued with him. This all stemmed from the liberal teaching of Rabbi Hillel. To take things even further than that, you had another rabbi named Akiva, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva interpreted the phrase to mean that a husband could divorce his wife if she simply became unclean in his eyes. In other words, he found somebody else prettier than her. He could divorce her. Now, out of those three different rabbis, who do you think the men decided to follow? It wasn't the conservative one. And so unfortunately, in this particular time period, divorce was a tremendous issue all throughout the Old Testament, and it crept even into the times of Jesus. And Jesus specifically talked about that multiple times. So when Isaiah refers to the Messiah as this everlasting father, I can't help but think that some of the Jews would have scoffed at that. They don't know what that means, to have a father that doesn't walk out. They never understood consistency with men, and they could not comprehend this phrase, everlasting father. The arrival of the Messiah was way more than just grace. It introduced consistency and security. We understand this proper context of this name, though, fits in relation to God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Specifically, it's in relation to the, to the reign of God. He could reign or he will reign for eternity. The name Everlasting Father, though, is a response to the command or the promise that God gives to David known as the Davidic Covenant. 
And we find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you could take your, you don't have to hold your finger here. We're not going to come back here. If you could flip over to our text this morning, and that is 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David through this prophet, for, through, through the prophet Nathan. This promise, as I mentioned earlier, is known as the Davidic Covenant. As I talked about this before, uh, it's important for us to understand the different covenants all throughout the Old Testament. You have conditional covenants, you have unconditional covenants. The Davidic Covenant was an unconditional covenant. It was not like the Mosaic Covenant, which was conditional. So what does that mean, Pastor Brandon? Conditional covenant means that it was a promise that was made, but it would only come into fulfillment based upon certain conditions. The Mosaic law promised the Jews that God would be their protector, that God would bless them if the Jews remained keeping God as their God. They would follow the um, Mosaic law, and as long as they kept God as their God, God would uh, bring about protection. He would keep them protected. Well, we understand that looking at the northern kingdom of Israel and the Judah or the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, they obviously didn't make God their God. And so God allowed bondage to come into their life. That was a, that was a conditional covenant. The Davidic covenant being an unconditional covenant was a promise that was going to come to fulfillment regardless of anything else. It was going to happen. And so what we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is God laying out this unconditional covenant. In verses 12 through 13, you see the details of that. Drop down with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This promise is the introduction to the everlasting Father, which is Jesus Christ. What we see in the preceding verses is the detailed description of the everlasting Father as it pertains to the nation of Israel. The everlasting Father really is the link, or Isaiah is giving the link of the everlasting Father that's described in this Davidic covenant. So when he says everlasting Father, he's talking about the one whom was promised to David through the throne. You may ask yourself, since this name Everlasting Father has implications for Israel, how does it apply for me to me today? Since I'm obviously not a Jewish person, I'm a Gentile. The entire Bible has one common storyline. We've talked about this before. And that common storyline is God's pursuit of man through the plan of redemption. God chose to reveal his grace to mankind through the Jewish people. Jesus came through the nation of Israel. And even though the Davidic covenant was a promise of special grace with the nation of Israel... Therefore, it should not be applied to the church today. The fulfillment of this covenant still has implications for Christians. Well, so how so? Because we still serve the same God. We still worship the same Creator. Therefore, the revelation of God as the everlasting Father pertains to us today. So as we make our journey together this morning, we will see some character descriptions of the everlasting Father as it pertains to Israel. Yes, but the very definition of that name provides hope, not only for the nation of Israel, but for us today. So let's start out here with this name, Everlasting Father. First off, Everlasting Father defines Jesus as the protector. Defines Jesus as the protector. Looking back down at 2 Samuel chapter 7, look back at verse 10. It says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel... I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Continue on to verse 11. 
Since the time then I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. The background of this particular passage came at a time in which David desired to build a temple. David was bothered by the fact that the Ark of the Covenant simply was housed in a tent. If you were to look back at verse 2, you'll see a conversation that's occurring between David and Nathan. David says in verse 2, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside ten curtains. So well, why was this such a big deal? As we looked at several weeks ago, the ark of the covenant represented the very presence of God. David was bothered by the fact, because he had a love for God, that the presence of God was housed in a tent, while David was housed in a comfortable dwelling place. So David said, I don't like that. I want to build a temple so the presence of God has somewhere special and somewhere with honor in which he could dwell. And so he has this conversation with Nathan. He lays out his heart. Nathan then tells David, go and do what is in your heart because the Lord is with you. David and Nathan then part ways. And then later on that evening, David or Nathan is approached by God with a specific message. Nathan is sitting there, is approached by God with this message of God telling Nathan to go to David and remind David where God had taken him. You can see that in those verses following. We won't take the time to read it. But God wanted Nathan to remind David, David, I have taken you from a little small shepherd boy that was nothing in society to now king. And so my faithfulness to you will continue to go through the faithfulness of my people. God then follows a promise for this, for this protection of his people. He said he would appoint a place for his people and they would be protected from their enemies. But then what God does is he flips the script on David. In verse 11, God says to the prophet Nathan to deliver this to David. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. See what happened there? I don't want us to miss this. David desired to protect the Ark of the Covenant by building a house for God. God responded by saying that he would build a house for David. David desired to build God a dwelling. God desired to build David a dynasty. David offered God temporary protection. God responded with an eternal solution. And we understand that that eternal solution came through Jesus Christ, Jesus being our protector. David offered God only what he knew, and that was a home made from material things in order to protect God. But being human, David could only offer so much protection. But God in his mighty sovereign power could offer David and the rest of Israel ultimate protection. So as the everlasting father, Jesus is our ultimate protector. Jesus is the protector from ultimate death. He's the protector from the consequences of sin. Jesus provides protection that no one else, even great King David, could ever offer. So this promise continues in verses 12 through 13. But it's in verse 14 that we see a bit of confusion. After this promise is made in verse 14, God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Well, we understand that verse is in direct reference to the Messiah. But what's confusing about this is that Isaiah refers to Jesus as the everlasting father. There's a popular heresy out there that teaches that there is one true God and it denies the Trinity. This is known as the Jesus only movement or oneness theology. This movement teaches or does not recognize that the three distinct persons in the Godhead being the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. To do so is heresy. Because the Bible absolutely is clear that there are three distinct persons within the Godhead. 
but rather some see Jesus as being the God who sometimes manifests himself through the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the proponents of that heresy use Isaiah 9, 6 to support that. And it is confusing if we read it just straight as it is. Is it like I thought the everlasting father was like the father in the Trinity, not the son. If you were to read it like we understand things, we would be confused. But we have to understand that this was written in Hebrew. And so therefore it should be interpreted as how the Hebrew language desires for it to be interpreted. Say, well, what are you talking about? The name everlasting father is a Hebrew translation that means father of eternity. The Hebrew construction of this phrase, Father, is a primary noun. The everlasting is the term that describes the fatherhood. In other words, it's saying that Jesus is the Father of forever eternity. It was, he's the forever Father of eternity. So it was customary among those who spoke and wrote the Hebrew language to call a person who possessed a thing the Father of it. Therefore, a strong man was the Father of strength. A wise man was the Father of wisdom. A wealthy man was the father of, of riches, and so on. Michael's the father of good looks, I mean, so on and so forth. You possess that, you are that. Warren Wearsby describes it this way. Among the Jews, the word father means originator or source. For example, John describes Satan in John 8, 44. You know this verse well as what? The father of lies. It's, unlike, it's like us in the United States referring to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison as the forefathers of our nation. So to describe Jesus as everlasting father is to attribute him as being the author of eternity. He's not, we should not view this in a Trinitarian form because it's not what it's talking about. He is the eternal protector of our destiny. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So Jesus as the everlasting father is our protector, protector from sin, the everlasting consequences of it, and protector of our eternal destiny. Jesus Christ is the protector. But number two, the second aspect, everlasting father defines Jesus as the provider. Going back to 2 Samuel, God shifts his focus from focusing on the Messiah to the foreshadowing of the Messiah. In verse 14, God says, I will be his father, he shall be my son, and then he continues. He says, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. Well, who is God referring to here? Does he mean that he's going to punish his son, Jesus Christ? Well, that can't be it because Jesus has never sinned. What is God talking about? That phrase there, the, the previous phrase was a direct reference to the Messiah. The phrase following that is in reference to the intermediary seed. That seed being the nation of Israel. We understand that Isaiah is in the midst of proclaiming judgment because God is chastening his intermediary seed, the nation of Israel. But here's, all, here's the awesome part about it. All of that, even all of that, all the captivity, what God says in verse 15 is that my mercy shall not depart from him. My mercy shall not depart from him. Jesus was the great provider of mercy. Jesus was the only one that can make the throne of David last forever. What a joy is it to know that our Lord's provision is, is conditional, is not conditional, and not based upon our behavior. When Eileen and I, yesterday we celebrated our son's sixth birthday. When Eileen and I were expecting our first child, one of my friends looked at me and said, when you have that first baby, that will be the first time that you begin to understand the unconditional love that our Father has for us. And I remember when Kaysen was born on that, um, was it a Friday evening? A Friday evening, right around 6 o'clock. I remember he was laying there on the weighing table. They had put that tiny little diaper on him that seemed huge on him. 
And I remember him laying there, and he looked up at me with uh, tears in his eyes. He was crying. And I remember at that moment, just this overwhelming feeling that I will do anything in order to make sure he's happy. But I also understood that there was nothing he could do back for me. I could take care of him. I had to change him. But there was nothing that he could do to love me back, that that didn't matter to me. Because I had a great, unconditional love for him. A father's natural desire to provide for his kids. But as Jesus, being the great provider, he is the ultimate provider. And his provision is based upon nothing other than his grace. We can't do anything to earn what Jesus has done for us. Jesus just bestows it upon us. He is the great, great provider. Because of this provision of Jesus, we can pray to our Heavenly Father. The author of Hebrews explains this shift that only Jesus provided. In the Old Testament, they were underneath this law, the, Old Te- the, the priestly system. The high priest had to make intercession for them to their Heavenly Father. But the author of uh, Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7, By so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus provided a way for mankind to come to the Father. To help us understand just how truly special this is. There's a parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 11 to help paint the provision of the Heavenly Father. You don't have to turn there, but if you would like to, Hebrews or Luke chapter 11. In the beginning of that chapter, the disciples approach Jesus, and they're asking Jesus, how do you pray? What does it mean to pray? How do you do that effectively? Jesus gives them uh, instructions on how to do so, and he follows that up with what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. But after he gives the Lord's Prayer, he says this. He says, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. But I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give to him as many as he needs. In this particular setting, in this particular context, it was common for the people that had traveling guests stop in their home to to feed them. Well, if they didn't have enough food, they would go to their neighbor and their friend, and they would ask to borrow that food. Kind of like what we do, and we run out of eggs. We go to our neighbor, hey, do you have any eggs? Well, and so in this particular setting, this neighbor went, and it looks like it was late, went over to his friend's house, who probably had kids sleeping in the same room, because that's how they did it back then. They all had everybody in the same room. His friend knocks at the door, and he's afraid that he's going to wake up his family, so he tells him to go away. Well, his friend doesn't stop. He continues to knock, and he continues to knock. His friend gets up and says, I will give you what you want, but not because we're friends, but because of your persistence. So after he gives that parable, Jesus then follows this. He says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, as he's talking to them, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will you offer him a scorpion? And every single father would say, absolutely not. We would give him what he wants, especially not something that would hurt him. Jesus then follows. If you then being evil, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? 
What Jesus is talking about is even though Jesus is, is talking about the great provision of the Heavenly Father, the only way that we can approach the Heavenly Father is through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verses 13 through 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. To pray in the name of Jesus is to come before the throne of God in authority, the authority that only Jesus provides. Jesus, the everlasting Father, provides for us a means to go to the eternal Father or to the heavenly Father. Finally, number three. The everlasting Father defines Jesus as perpetual. Perpetual, the world or the word perpetual means never ending or changing. As we described earlier, observed earlier, to describe Jesus as, as everlasting Father is to attribute him as being the author of eternity. Within the context of Isaiah, the everlasting Father will forever establish the throne of David, and the rule of Jesus will be over or never be overthrown. I want us to follow the connection here. Turn with me to one more final spot, and that is Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. There's a connection here. So we see the proclamation in 2 Samuel chapter 7 of the eternal destiny, the eternal throne of David through the Davidic covenant. You see the reassurance of that in Isaiah, saying that there will be a Messiah that will come, and he will be the everlasting Father. You then see the fruition of that, the arrival of that, in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, the angel appears before Mary and delivers the news of the Messiah. Now, of course, Mary is completely shocked, as anyone would be, at this news, let alone the fact that the angel is standing right there before her. And so in order to comfort her, Gabriel then responds to Mary with these words. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus." He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. In this glorious birth announcement, the angel announced that the everlasting father that the Old Testament had talked about had now come. While it is true that the rule of Jesus over Israel will be forever, and again, that may not apply directly to the church, us as Gentiles, that doesn't mean that the implications of this do not have great impact for us today. As I was meditating upon this everlasting nature of our Lord, the overwhelming thought came across my mind. Because Jesus is the everlasting Father, we can rest assured that with Jesus, there's no walking out. We can rest assured that with Jesus, there's no tired of, of being responsible for the, His children and therefore leaving. With Jesus, He is forever by our side. As I continue to think about this and meditate upon this, I think that the issue that occurs with our world today is that the reason why people don't want to accept Jesus is because they're too busy viewing Jesus and the Heavenly Father through the lens of their earthly father. So there's, they don't want to give their life to Jesus because they know or they believe that Jesus is going to walk out on them just like their own dad did. And sometimes, in some, actually I should say every single time, a child has their father walk out on them. It's not the child's fault. Jesus will never walk out on us. But people reject Jesus because they believe that he's just like their earthly father. We cannot look at Jesus through the lens of our earthly father. There was a story several years ago about a young man who committed a crime and he was sentenced by a judge. The judge happened to know the young man since childhood and the judge was very acquainted with the man's father. 
who was also a famous magistrate, a legal scholar who authored many different legal studies. The judge looked at the son and said, Do you remember your father? asked the judge. I remember him well, Your Honor, the young man replied. In an attempt to probe his conscience, the magistrate said, As you are about to be sentenced, and as you think about, think about your wonderful dad, what do you remember most clearly about him? And according to the story, the young man paused and looked up and said, I remember when I went to him for advice. He looked at me from the book he was writing and said, Run along, boy, I'm busy. When I went to him for companionship, he turned me away, saying, Run along, son, this book must be finished. Your Honor, you remember him as a great lawyer. I remember him as a lost friend. In Jesus, we don't have any walking out. We can come to him in our good times, in our bad times, and I guarantee you, according to the promises of God's word, Jesus is still there. In our good times, Jesus is there. In our bad times, Jesus is there. Sometimes it doesn't sound like Jesus is, is, or the Heavenly Father is speaking to us, and sometimes he is remaining silent, but even in his absence doesn't mean that he's not there. Or sometimes we don't hear him because we're not listening. But in this name, Everlasting Father, as we look forward to the fruition of that completely during the millennial reign of Christ, may we rest assured this Christmas that if we don't uh, remember anything else, may we remember this, because our Savior is the Everlasting Father, that connects us with the Heavenly Father, there is no walking out with God. We can go to God in our deepest hurts and express that to Him and rest assured that God is going to minister to us in a tremendous way. This Christmas, may our eyes be opened up to the perpetual nature of our Lord. May we be reminded that our Savior is not like our earthly dads. As hard as many of us strive to be good dads, all of us fall short to the unmatchable character of our lasting Father. Because of Jesus, we can go to the Father in hard times and good times. Because of Jesus, we are protected from the everlasting consequences of our sin. And because of Jesus, we have a God that will never leave us nor forsake us. And because of Jesus, this Christmas, we have an everlasting, unstoppable, unchangeable hope in Jesus Christ.